Welcome to Gold Ribbon Conversations, the podcast created to support families fighting childhood cancer in Ireland. Six children, adolescents and young adults are diagnosed with cancer every week in Ireland. And the Gold Ribbon, which illuminates precious light and love and courage and compassion, is a symbol of strength and solidarity for each and every one. My name is Sinead O'Moore, and it is my privilege to bring you these episodes on behalf of Childhood Cancer Foundation Ireland, a charity funded by and led by parents of children with cancer, who know that one of the greatest sources of support for this fight is conversation. Throughout this podcast, I talk to survivors, fighters and parents who have lost, as well as the experts who care for our children's health and happiness. Yes, we talk about the fear and the sadness, but we also talk about the hope and the friendship and the community that exists here because you are not alone. As a non-government funded organisation, Childhood Cancer Foundation Ireland values every single donation while on its mission to help more children survive cancer and thrive as adults and support all those dealing with the long-term effects of illness and trauma. You can help by sharing this podcast and by texting GOLD to 50300 and donating four euro or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. In this episode, I'm joined by motivational speaker, Nikki Bradley, who at 16 was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, a rare form of bone cancer. Now as an adult, Nikki talks us through how as a teen she navigated her diagnosis, her treatment and her mindset. Cancer is so much more than just the disease. It's the impact on the whole family, on future plans, on education, fertility, mobility, and innocence. And as we learn from Nikki in this episode, surviving cancer is also so much more than just remission. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. An incredible conversation to have, especially because you have, I suppose, transformed a really challenging and difficult phase of your life into something that is now bringing motivation and inspiration and leadership to others through your work. Um, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Take us back to when you were a teenager, um, the first signs and symptoms, and how you were feeling and living life. Okay, so let's rewind to the summer of 2002. I was 16, um, just an ordinary student. I, I'm based in Donegal here. Um, I was, yeah, loving life, very much the teenager, dyeing my hair every color under the sun. The photos that I have from that time, I think my hair when I was diagnosed was bright purple. Um, the only thing that differentiated me between other people my age was that I had a big lump on my pelvis that I had been ignoring for, by the time I even told my mum, I think I'd had it for, like I'd had it noticeably for maybe seven or eight months. I actually can't remember how long I've had it or I'd had it at that point, but I began noticing it when it was very small. I just noticed it was a little, just a little hard lump. Um, very close to the hip bone on my right hand side 
and I didn't make a huge amount of it. I knew it was ever so slightly tender, the way a bruise would feel. That's how I would describe it. But only if you happen to touch it. If if you left it alone, it didn't bother me. Um, throughout the summer of 2002, I noticed that it had grown quite significantly and it felt like it grew, went from nothing to very noticeable, not overnight, but it just, it felt like it grew very quickly. I became concerned, but for some reason to this day, I still don't know why, because it's not like me at all, but I didn't say a word, not even to my mum, who I'm still to this day very close with, didn't tell anyone, didn't tell any of my friends, didn't show anybody. Um, and why I say it's very not like me to be like that, whenever I was younger, I was the biggest drama queen. To be honest, I still am. Who am I trying to get? Um, <laughs> but especially when it came to, you know, being anyway sick, getting a day off school, a cold turned into like pneumonia, as far as I was concerned, just to get me that day on the couch. So to have something that actually warranted a bit of attention, I completely shut it down. I was like, no, I can't tell anybody. And I even in my head didn't say anything. In the space of a day, that whole side of things changed. I was messing around with a friend of mine in school. We'd obviously come back to school. The summer ended, we'd come back to school. And we were on the stairwell. And I remember this like it was yesterday. We were kind of pushing each other and shoving each other and just messing around. And my friend, just whatever way she pushed me, I banged that area off the banister of the stairs. And the pain that I felt in that split second just brought reality crashing down. I was like, that's not normal. That level of pain isn't normal. And I got a huge fright in that moment. I actually think I started crying, which shocked her because it on, on the outside, it didn't look like I'd really hurt myself at all. So that evening I went home and I shared everything with my mum and I also showed her the lump. Now, because it had grown to the level it had by the time I showed her, she was terrified. So very quickly, like I think it was the next day, we went to the doctor and about two or three weeks after that, scans were organized. And then we got to about three weeks before Christmas, it was December, when I found myself sitting in a consultant's office in Letterkenny being diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. And from that day to this, my life changed forever. <laughs> How did it feel to hear the words cancer? really alien because back then cancer just wasn't as rife as it is now you know I was actually the first in my whole family including my grandparents to be diagnosed which was so strange considering I was so young and um, I, I doubt people nowadays could say that which is really sad but back then I was you know to be the youngest diagnosed um, it was really terrifying and especially to hear the words Ewing sarcoma because what scared me more was not only had I never heard them, but my doctor also was really unfamiliar with this particular type of cancer. So that scared me all the more because obviously we look at doctors as kind of gods, especially when you're in that situation, you very much rely on them to fix you. So to be told that they didn't feel comfortable kind of taking me on and not just my doctor locally, but my doctors in Dublin were the same. So I actually had to go to England to have the tumor removed so that was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. Um, but what scared me the most was seeing my parents scared. That was really horrible. Um, and especially with the time of year, it was literally about three weeks before Christmas. So I wasn't even able to start my treatment. Um, we had to actually wait. And my family had to, I suppose we all had to just put on this little show at Christmas and pretend everything was normal when it very much wasn't. So it was, it was a very surreal and scary time. Teenage girls often have a very um, toxic relationship with their bodies at the best of times. 
and we can judge ourselves quite harshly. Did, did you start to, to feel anything negative towards your body and why it was doing this to you? There was two specific things that happened to me throughout my treatment that affected me even now. Um, one of them was obviously losing my hair. So I lost everything, eyebrows and everything. Um, and I always say that it's so funny because now in, in the world that we're in, the beauty world, eyebrows are like the, the pinnacle <laughs> of the, the face and of the how you look, you know, in terms of your beauty regime and stuff like that. Back then, it was very much, you know, you rocked the eyebrows that God gave you. And I had light eyebrows, to say the least, but at least they were there. Uh, when I lost them, I looked so weird. I think that's the only word to describe it. I just, it makes your forehead look massive for starters. And it, you know, your eyebrows frame your face. And when they were taken away, I just looked weird. And that combined with obviously losing my actual hair and having to wear a wig, that was weird. But as part of my treatment, I had to go on steroids, which I hated. For two reasons one because they made me put on nearly two stone which made me look completely different and two because they made me so angry you know everything you hear about steroids is true they're they make you snap so quickly um and there's one particular thing my poor mum she'd put up with so much i remember she used to make this weird noise when she yawned it was like a little clicking noise and while i was on steroids i remember thinking every time she did it i was like if that woman does that one more time <laughs> Um, and that was just the steroids, you know, it was, it, it just t turned you into a bit of a monster. And, you know, being, uh, by the, during my treatment, I was 17 at that stage and having no hair, put on, putting on weight and obviously your hormones are going mental anyway, but to have that extra kind of aggression within you because of the steroids made me feel like I, I wasn't, I didn't have control of myself anymore. And it was, it was horrible. It was so isolating and there was nobody that I could talk to who understood you know, it was, it was very lonely time. Did they have to start talking to you about future fertility plans? Unfortunately, I didn't have a great experience with my doctors around this subject. Um, so my mum, at that time I was 17, I wasn't thinking about children at all. Um, I was just looking to get to the end of this, you know, treatment plan. But my mum obviously knew that I would have to deal with that eventually. And actually somebody in my community a guy in my community that was the same age as me was going through cancer treatment as well and he was given the option um to freeze his sperm so it was happening back then to freeze eggs and sperm um so my mom knowing what he and his family were going through she had the foresight to ask was it possible that i would have my eggs frozen and i was told and reassured that i wouldn't need to because i was so young that it would be fine that my fertility wouldn't be um affected I actually went through the menopause at 19. So I've been on HRT since. So that was something that they could have done even just as a precaution and they didn't. And as a result, I can't have children. Like that's the black and white of that. So obviously now as a 35 year old woman with, you know, a partner, I, I, you know, it's, it is what it is, but it was very unfortunate. I think this is such an important area for families to think about because when children are diagnosed with things, we can often feel like we're treating the child and forget about the future life ahead of this person. Yeah. And to have the courage to, to have these open conversations with your doctors and to advocate on behalf of who this child is going to grow into. It's so important. I know.
And it is like, you know, my mum would have been going through enough to try and deal with mm. everything. Like, you know, something that isn't talked about often is the financial stress that's caused by a cancer diagnosis. So as I said, we had to travel to England. We also had to stay there for three weeks. My mum had to live, like survive while I was in hospital. Obviously I was being fed, but she wasn't. She had to give up work when I was diagnosed. She stopped working instantly. So, you know, that all of that on top of everything else was going through her head. For, so for her to you know, be able to ask my doctors about fertility and to be told that it would be fine. She obviously took them at their words. Now, I mean, it is, as I said, it is what it is. They were wrong, but they obviously felt confident enough themselves that I would be fine. One thing I would say is like I had radiotherapy very close to that whole area. And also my cancer was in that whole area. So, you know, my, my insides were affected. So I do believe that they should have known that there probably would be an issue and something should have been done, but you know, there's no point in focusing too much about that now because you could very easily become quite bitter about the whole thing. Um, you know, we just have to kind of be grateful for what we have at this stage. Which in itself is a whole mindset learning curve that I assume you've had to go through with lots and lots of aspects of this journey. And probably something that nobody will ever understand how to do unless you've been through something so extreme that feeling of don't dwell on the negative focus on the positive let go of the anger because you have to keep looking ahead that is exactly everything you just said is a hundred percent how i have to be it's not a case that i'm just like oh yeah that's how i just naturally am it's actually a survival instinct that i've had since my diagnosis and it, I, I apply this to absolutely everything in my life. I don't allow myself to dwell. Now, I, I think it's important to give yourself time to accept whatever situation because you don't want to bury your head in the sand. You know, there is the other scale, the other side of the scale. And I, I'm very conscious of not doing that either. So my rule is that I, if I have a huge setback, which I've had a number of over the years, um, I allow myself a few days or a few weeks, depending on the setback, to basically dissect everything that's happening and to give it my full attention but after that that's it that's it it's not that it's parked up but we then go to the next stage which is dealing with it and actually just accepting it and getting on with it um, and thankfully as I've gotten a little bit older I've added another step which is trying to find the most out of it and actually trying to find the positives and because I don't get as scared about especially medical setbacks Thankfully, I'm not at all scared about staying in a hospital, having an operation or anything like that. And even in terms of changes to my body, I kind of, it's terrible to say, but there's only one thing that I'm facing in the future, which is full right leg amputation. That's massive. When that happens, that will be a whole other set of rules to learn to cope with that. But at the moment, anything that happens, adding another scar to an already scarred leg to me doesn't bother me. Um, but focusing on what I can do and what I control can control is what I've learned from being lucky enough to survive cancer. Take us back then to the process of, of the beginning of the treatment. And I'm sure you didn't always have that mindset. Oh no. Do you know what? Sometimes when I do these chats with people, I often think my mum should be the one answering these questions because I was a nightmare. I'm not going to lie. I was an absolute nightmare. And it's strange. Like there's so much of that time that I remember one way and she remembers another. Now, obviously my dad was very much part of the journey as was my brother and sister, but my mum was, 
she's like the strong one. <laughs> she's the person I aspire to be when I grow up. Um, so she was definitely, she was voted <laughs> member of the family to come to all of my treatments. So she saw everything. She also saw every side of me and there were many. Um, she had to deal with just so much. Um, my chemotherapy, so I had chemotherapy, radiotherapy and the surgery over in the UK. So chemo started in January and that required, I had 12 cycles, which I know everybody has different types of chemo and things have changed since, but mine required a week's stay in St. Vincent's Hospital um, every month, basically. And my mom would come down with me or, you know, my mom and dad would take it in turns. Um, but during that time, I basically reverted back to being, in some ways, to being a child. So I had to actually be interviewed by hospitals to decide whether I'd be treated as a child or as an adult. I was adamant that I wanted to be in an adult's ward. I didn't, in my head back then, the thought of being surrounded by children when I was 17 was my worst nightmare. Not even now, if I was to think about that, I would think of it from you know, an empathy point of view and the emotional side of seeing a child sick. But back then, just being a selfish teenager, I just didn't want to be surrounded by what I thought would be screaming children. Um, what I didn't think about was that being treated as an adult required being in a ward with people maybe 50 years my senior who were dealing with actual death. You know, I, I did see, I witnessed quite a bit of death right across from me as a result of older people coming in with maybe secondary issues and not coming back out again. So that's something that I had to learn the hard way because I was so determined to be treated as an adult. Um, but it's funny that I was... I obviously passed that interview and they said that, you know, she's more than capable of, of sitting in a, an adult ward. But once I started my treatment, I started acting, not acting like a child, but started relying so heavily on my mum that, you know, she would be going home in the evening and I would be basically making her feel bad for having the evening to herself. Um, and it's so strange the things you remember. Like I have such clear memories of being in St. Vincent's during the summer and seeing visitors come and go and they would all be in their summer clothes and their sunglasses on their head and they'd be carrying bottles of water because it was so hot outside and I would be just so jealous. It felt like I was in prison and that I, I was in my pajamas or whatever I happened to be wearing or a gown or whatever. And I would be so jealous seeing these brightly clothed people coming in. And I kind of took that out on my mum. So like my mum's like a really fashionable, still is a really fashionable woman. And she'd come in looking lovely and fresh. And I would resent that because I was trapped in hospital. And I feel so guilty to this day for putting her through that. Like I wouldn't necessarily say anything, mm. but I would deep, like secretly be resenting the fact that she could then leave. Um, and it's just, you know, these are the strange wonderings of the mind that unless you're going through the treatment yourself, you wouldn't really understand or kind of, relate to but that was kind of it you know it was chemotherapy it was as I suppose I was lucky it was as painless as it could be in that I the anti-sickness tablets worked I very rarely felt anything other than just drained um, and tired my immune system obviously you know hit the floor after the 10 day mark the biggest thing with the chemo was losing my hair going to my prom wearing a wig it was horrible I, any of the photos I have of me wearing a wig, I, they're in a drawer buried somewhere in my home house. I don't have them about me anymore. I just don't like to see them. Um, but all in all, chemo was kind of okay. My surgery was a success. They removed the tumor and I've been cancer free since. So, you know, there's not much I could say about that other than it worked. 
and the radiotherapy. I have to say, the radiotherapy was almost enjoyable. Um, I moved in, so obviously I'm from Donegal, and my radiotherapy was in St. Luke's. So it was going to be six, six weeks of daily radiotherapy, 20 minutes a day. It didn't hurt at all. And it was only 20 minutes. So obviously I wasn't going to drive up and down from Donegal every day for 20 minutes. So I actually moved in with my grandmother who lived in Kildare. And we had a ball. You know, I got to reconnect with, at 17, I got to reconnect with my grandmother when it was very unusual to live with your granny at that age. Maybe some people can relate to that. None of my friends could. They probably thought it was a bit strange, but it was just what we had to do. But it was actually a blessing in disguise. Like we would sit and watch Fair City. Uh, it was one of the biggest memories I have. It's not something I would ever have watched myself, but actually really got into the storyline. And the two of us, like, I can't even remember. I think it was at seven o'clock it was on or something like that. You know, we would sit down at, at the same time every day and this is what we would watch. And there was just so many amazing memories I have of that six week period. That was so long ago. Unfortunately, my granny's not with us anymore, but I was lucky that I was given that opportunity. Like my sister and brother never had that, you know, that real chance to connect like that. Um, and as I said, radiotherapy didn't hurt. It, it was fine. For me, it was actually the radiotherapy that caused all the lasting damage. So again, this is something I never knew. I never knew could, could happen. But that laser going into the one area every day basically destroyed the bone in my right hip. And that's what's led to everything to date. At what point did you, did the mindset again, it's all about the mindset. The <laughs> mindset have to go from, you know, it's doing its job, it's serving its purpose, it's healing me, it's keeping me alive, it's keeping me safe. To then start hearing these conversations around, well, hang on, there's going to be lasting damage here. Well, to be, to be honest, I didn't actually have those conversations. I wasn't privy to those conversations um, at the time, especially with radiotherapy. So I was given oodles of information about chemo. Um, I think it's because it's, it's the one treatment that everybody talks about because it has such physical effects. Now, I know that you know, my own uncle had to have radiotherapy on his face and it was really damaging. But for, for a lot of people, radiotherapy actually doesn't, doesn't hurt at all what chemo does for a lot of people. So I was given loads of pamphlets and stuff like that about chemo, but radiotherapy, I was just given a little bit of information. All I was really told was that it would be every day and it would be for 20 minutes and it was a laser and I had to have the little tattoos that I still have. They were my first tattoos. They weren't my last, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't given a huge amount of information. I certainly wasn't given any information about what could happen afterwards. I had to learn that through my own experience. So, you know, I was given the all clear eventually and went back to whatever life I, I tried to get back to whatever life I had before. So, you know, I went back to education and was adamant that because I didn't get to do my leaving, you know, I, I, the day I was diagnosed, I was actually in my school uniform. It was the last day I ever wore that particular uniform. That's how kind of sudden things changed. So when I came out the other side and rejoined society, I did so as essentially an uneducated young woman. Um, it sounds terrible, but it, that was my reality. All my friends had gone on to college by that stage. And I found myself grateful to be cancer free, but being cancer free is not going to pay the bills. You know, I was at the age where I was starting to think about my future and about wanting to have a bit of money. And I knew that education was how that was going to happen. So I was sitting my leaving cert as a mature student and again, very dramatically, life changed in the space of a day. I had a twinge in my hip 
that I couldn't get rid of. I was sitting at the table doing coursework and it felt like I needed to stretch. So I stood up and tried to stretch and it just, the, the pain in, in, intensified so rapidly that by that evening I was actually in hospital on morphine and stayed there for a few days and then went home and was bed bound for at least three weeks. And the reason that that pain was there was because the radiotherapy had destroyed the bone. And long story short, I ended up needing a hip replacement at, before my 21st birthday. Um, so that was my reality and that was my experience with radiotherapy. Was there a point where you thought pain, this is cancer? Initially, yes. I mean, when I felt that initial twinge, the, and that's that's what doctors, that was the first thing they were checking for was, is it back? Because from the day that I finished treatment to the day that I had this first bit of pain, there was about three, three and a half years of a gap. So it was quite likely that it could have come back, especially with Ewing's. The, the likelihood that it will return in the first couple of years is quite high. So everybody was on high alert that it could be cancer. And once they, once they did all their checks and realized that it wasn't cancer, they kind of relaxed a bit and forgot that I'm still in the, the pain that I'm in. So actually, when I say long short, story short, I needed a hip replacement, that the longer version of that was that I spent a year in agony, absolute agony. To this day, I've never experienced pain like it. I spent 10 weeks in St. Vincent's where they did every test under the sun and eventually sent me home, none the wiser, um, that I didn't sneeze. This is something that I always mention. It's so random, but I'll never forget it. I didn't sneeze for eight months because that involuntary jerking motion that's caused by sneezing would have sent that pain surging up and down the right-hand side of my body. So the, the pain was coming from the nerves that had been damaged through the first surgery when they removed the tumor they also had to kind of remove the bits that are around the tumor. It's called a clear margin, just to make sure that nothing is infected or whatever. Um, and by doing that, they had to cut through healthy muscle and nerve tissue. Uh, so, the, so to this day, I still have ongoing extreme nerve pain. Um, but in 2006, which is when all this happened, the, the nerve pain that I experienced was, I can't even begin to describe it. Um, there was one night in particular where, for whatever reason, I had a really, really severe flare-up and I was making screaming noises that sounded like they were genuinely coming from someone else. I sounded like a distressed donkey or something. <laughs> it just sounded completely not like myself. And I was frozen to the spot. I was lying on my back. I remember looking up at the, you know, the, the standard hospital lights that are above your bed and just looking at it and looking away, looking around. There was a nurse sitting to my left with a glass of water and a straw. I was able to move my head enough to just put the straw to my mouth and take a sip because I all I could concentrate on was breathing in and out. That was all I could do to get through this. If I so much as put my hand on the sheets of the bed, it was just sending off those signals um, so that lasted for most of the night. They almost had to sedate me. They certainly had to give me Valium, but they nearly had to actually just fully put me out to get rid of that pain. Um, so the only thing that was going to get rid of that was removing the hip. And thankfully, literally the next day after my after they removed the hip, that severe pain was gone, like just gone. And it hasn't come back since. Thank God. Um, I was left with post-operative pain, but 
to be honest, I barely noticed it. I genuinely, like I didn't even feel I needed pain medication afterwards. I, to say I was relieved is an understatement. You know, you are, when you're in that level of pain, you're trapped. You are trapped in your own body and nobody can help you. And you, you don't even want people near you because like I wouldn't even let my family really hug me because to move, to, to hug them from my hospital bed would have set it off again. So to be able to just even sit up and to get out of bed and to walk around on my crutches, I mean, to say I was grateful is an understatement. And I think when you go through something like that, it makes you so grateful for everything. So like I ended up having to need a second hip replacement. I broke my femur. I'm now facing, as I said, full right leg amputation. Having gone through what I did in 2006 has set me up for everything I've been through since and how I've dealt with everything since has been so much more positive and so much more grateful because of then. And for that reason, I mean, it's, I don't need, really don't want to say I'm glad it happened, but in some ways I'm glad bits of it happened because it just made me realize that, you know, you think it's bad now, you don't know what's around the corner. As a parent-led charity, Childhood Cancer Foundation Ireland understands the impact a diagnosis of childhood cancer has on the entire family. And they help to ease the burden of treatment by raising much-needed funds to provide practical and emotional supports. Like the Shared Care Hospital Project, which works to improve the facilities in Ireland's 16 shared care regional hospitals, which children can attend for treatment outside of Crumlin, meaning less travel, less costs, and home together more. As a non-government funded organisation, every donation helps. You can help by sharing this podcast and by texting GOLD to 50300 and donating €4 Euro, or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. If I'm honest, um, my first hip replacement wasn't my kind of light bulb moment. Mm. I see my first hip replacement as the time where I was just grateful to be out of pain. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time just getting used to life in a different type of pain, but like in a good way, as in like I was, I was left with a bit of pain afterwards and I still had the nerve pain and the muscle damage that I had from the first surgery. So there was always a bit of daily pain, but I did spend quite a while just appreciating being able to move again. Um, however, I will say that one thing that really knocked me was the limp that I acquired after the hip replacement. So when they when they take out your hip, they they remove obviously a bit of bone, so your leg shortens ever so slightly. Um, and this is what I mean about you think it's bad now. Wait till what's around the corner because the confidence that I lost from that tiny limp that I had then was actually enormous I there was one I have such clear memories are so random but I remember walking down Letterkenny Main Street and it had been raining that day so I was delighted I was probably the only person in Donegal that was delighted to see more rain um, and, and the reason I was delighted was because I was able to hold an umbrella up mm. and walk with my limp without anybody knowing it was me and the, the feeling of confidence it gave me to do that was so good to the point where when it stopped raining I didn't actually want to take down my umbrella because I hadn't reached my destination um, and instead of just staying on my crutches a little bit longer if I needed to I was a little bit stubborn and wanted to get off them because I wanted to feel and look normal but by getting off them and being left with that slight limp it 
I probably, as I said, I probably would have been better at least staying on one. I now have an 11 centimeter leg length discrepancy. Like the difference is unbelievable now compared to then, but I'm so much more confident now. Like when I go to the gym, I don't even, I just hop around the place from one machine to the next because there's no point in picking up my crutch. I would have died of mortification to, to hop anywhere back then because I would have been so embarrassed to like jump up and like, you know, people would have seen me by doing that. Um, obviously like, you know, with age, you just become more confident anyway. But that first, the way I was left after the first hip replacement took a long time for me to get my head around how I was, but that was just down to my youth. By the time I had my second hip replacement, I was actually in Australia when they took out my hip. Um, I was a completely different person by then. Absolutely night and day of a difference in terms of confidence and in terms of my mindset. And it allowed me to have a huge operation on the other side of the world, away from my family and not be in any way scared. Like if anything, I was downplaying everything to my family to, I suppose in some ways I felt it was my duty to give back to them. They had to put up with so much when I was sick first and bear the brunt of my worries that I felt now as an adult, it was my time to bear the brunt of theirs and to reassure them that I was in good hands, which I was, you know, the treatment I received in Australia is I'd say the best I've ever, I've ever received in any hospital I've been in. So I knew I had the confidence that I could genuinely rely on my doctors. Um, so yeah, it's my light bulb moment came around the time of my second replacement, I would say. Which is why it's it's so important to, to realize that cancer in adults is different to cancer in children. It, I mean, it really is. It, I, can't, I can't relate to full childhood cancer because mm. I was a teenager. But I suppose when you're young enough, you in, see, it's hard to know because cancer makes everybody grow up. Like my little brother was, I think he was 12 when I was diagnosed and he grew up overnight. We saw it in him. Like he even looked physically different. He tried to grow a little moustache. He just tried to be a man to look after me. And, you know, that broke all of our hearts to see him trying to protect me when he was still a child. So, yeah, it's it's different for everyone. And how, you know, you were suppressing that the first diagnosis, you were suppressing that pain, you were suppressing the lumps, the changes, the adaptations out of fear um you know there's the growing up but then there's the protecting of yourself there's the not being in the command of your own emotions yet because you haven't learned those skills yet you're still evolving you're still maturing you're still trying to figure out life you know it's it's more than just the physical impact when you are talking about childhood cancer or teen cancer. And it's so important that in a, in a plan of care that, you know, protecting and supporting that emotional development and growth, because there's no, there's no point in coming out of this just physically well, if there's been such damage done to the emotional growth too. Oh, like could not agree more with you there. I mean, the physical or sorry, the emotional impact and the psychological impact that my treatment and that everything was that was associated with my treatment had on me was about 50 times worse than the actual physical things that I went through. The scars that I have now are nothing compared to the ones that I had within. 
Um, I actually didn't realize that I had suffered from PTSD for years after 2006. I would wake up in the middle of the night and start sweating profusely. And I would feel, so as I said, I went through the menopause um, and went, was on HRT. So I would actually get hot flushes. Um, and for years, I put that rising hot flush feeling down to the menopause stuff as opposed to PTSD. So, but what I didn't realize was that those flushes and that rise in temperature and sweating and the fear and the tears to the eyes, that was all happening when I thought about a specific moment in hospital in 2006. And that moment was when the physiotherapist came to get me out of bed and she brought my legs. So this is, as I said, when I was not letting anybody touch me. She was lifting my legs and bringing them to the side of the bed and just doing that, I was screaming the house down. And what I was trying to tell her was that I didn't have control of my leg. Like I, was, I was almost pleading with her. I was terrified because I knew what she was going to do. And sure enough, when she got my legs to the end of the bed, she let go. And oh my God, I'd say you could have heard me here in Donegal. I screamed that loudly. And even now saying this, I can feel like a bit of emotion bubbling. That was in 2006. So like that type of, like, I mean, I didn't allow that woman. I, I've never met her since. I didn't allow her near me after that because she just, she didn't listen. Like there's no two ways around it. I was pleading with her to listen to me as the patient. All she saw was a young one given out instead of actually seeing me as somebody in extreme pain and just really listening to what I was trying to tell her. But the damage that that did to me psych psychologically was so much worse that pain I felt eventually went away later that day, you know, but what was left in its place was a fear that I don't know if I'm even still over, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there is more, we need to listen more to the patient, regardless of their age. You know, I've seen, unfortunately, I've seen so many, especially so many older patients just left in their beds and not listened to. And I get so angry I know firsthand what that feels like to be just left and to be to be not listened to. Um, so yeah, I think we have we have a good bit to go yet in in terms of education. And we can be so dismissive of children as well. But at the same time, you do, there is that balance because if you say if you go the other side and make a big deal, then the child feels that it is a big deal and then they become scared. And I think it's that fear that makes them cry more. It's not actually the pain they're in. It's how you react. So it is like, it's very difficult for a parent to know what way to navigate every situation. It's, mm -hmm. and obviously I'm not a parent, but I, you know, I've been around children enough and I've, I've seen the different ways that situations are dealt with. It's, it's a, a fine line, I think. From going through what you've gone through yourself, but also the close relationship that you've had with your parents and specifically your mother through this, over the years and with your through your work within you know motivational leadership and and challenging how we think about things have you learned anything that you feel is incredibly important for families to start um building in to their to their thought processes or just their support systems right now because from speaking with other parents for this podcast i understand i i hear that you know, the grueling routine of the medical care, and the medical appointments and treatment and tests and keeping life going, other children having to still be cared for and their lives being protected and kept normal. 
finances still being protected and kept normal, if at all possible. It's a lot. It's a lot, a lot, a lot to carry. And I can completely appreciate and understand how feelings and emotions and, and mindsets are the bottom of the list. Yeah. But it is now the body of your work. Um, mm. And I suppose a lot of about, you know, your purpose and how you challenge yourself physically in, in the challenges that you set yourself and regaining, I imagine, a lot of control for you. Um, tell us about, like, I suppose, what that has done for you as you've learned it and what you believe that families could benefit from. Okay, well, firstly, just starting with families, it was actually, you mentioned the grueling routine. It is grueling, but funnily, for me and my family, it actually was the routine that allowed us to normalize the situation. So when I was diagnosed, and like anybody that's gone through this, which is a lot of people listening, everyone knows that the weight between diagnosis and treatment, even if it's only a few days, a few weeks, whatever, it feels like an eternity because that is the, the big, horrible, dark hole of the unknown. And for us, we had, I'd say by the time I actually started my treatment, we maybe even had four or five weeks um, of just waiting. And in that time, all we had was time to overthink and worry. So by the time my treatment actually started, we were nearly like crying with relief that we actually had something that we could physically hold, something that we could grasp. And that was a routine. So like for us, you know, we were very quickly, my sister was at college at the time. So she was away, she was in Galway, but my brother, my mom and my dad and our cat <laughs> were at the house and our, between the four of us, our routine was very much, you know, a week, a month, I was in Dublin. Okay. We know that's going to happen for the next six weeks. And after the six week period, I'll then go to England and have the surgery. Um, so they wanted to shrink the tumor before they operated on it. So we knew for the next six weeks, sorry, for the next six cycles, and um, this was going to be our life. So within that, once you start breaking it down, it actually becomes quite manageable. The only thing is, and because I was so wrapped up in my own, obviously my own treatment, poor David, my brother was very much, he was just brought along. He obviously mm -hmm. still did his schooling and stuff like that, but he, I would imagine he was very much just not forgotten, but he probably did feel a little bit forgotten. Um, and he did rebel a little bit when I got better, but like he's such a good soul that he waited till I got better before he rebelled. And even at that, he just he didn't do anything bad. He just like you know he just wanted, mm. I suppose, wanted a bit of attention, which is completely normal. But during that time, we came together and we basically said, "This is just what we have to do." Um, but the financial side of things was a big burden for us. Um, as I said, my mom had to stop working straight away, um, and back then trying to find financial help was really difficult. You know, it wasn't just a case of hopping on Google. You know, that was back during the dial-up internet. God, do we even remember those days? Um, <laughs> everything was harder to find. And it was, again, down to my mum to try and find information from social welfare and, you know, just forms after forms. That was probably the most stress for my mum and dad was having to fill out these endless forms. And I think that it's very unfair that during such stressful times that families have to do that. I, I think you should just be able to go in and speak to somebody. And maybe that happens now, I don't know. Uh, now we were given, we had an amazing liaison officer in St. Vincent's. She was absolutely brilliant. And I think if it wasn't for her, um, my mum probably would have just cracked up, but it was great for my mum to be able to speak to her, just the two of them and be able to have adult conversations. Um, but yeah, there was, 
they would have had to deal with more than I will ever know. Um, but I know that one thing that really helped us was that structure. So for families going through it, I really hope that from the, at least from a financial point of view, there's more help now and that it's easier to find. Um, but if it isn't, speak up. <laughs> um, don't walk out without saying what you need to say, whether it's with your doctor, your liaison officer, your social welfare worker. Be confident enough to actually ask the questions that you want to ask, uh, because that is that is their job. That's what they're there for. Um, but they might not give you that information. It might be up, up to you to ask. Um, the other thing I would say is look out for other people that are in the same boat. Join as many groups as you can. Even if your head's wrecked with all the little notifications coming through on your phone, there could be just one person's comment on a particular day with that when you need it that could change everything. So do read everything. Um, from my own point of view, mindset has become like a positive mindset has become so unbelievably important to me that I can't imagine life any other way. Um, and I often get quite frustrated when people don't match that with me. Mm. Um, like my own boyfriend, it can be a little bit, not doom and gloom, but he can just be frightened of the unknown sometimes. And because I'm so used to that, to the opposite of that, to living so much of my life in the unknown that I don't give him enough of my patience, I think at times that I just expect him to accept and get on with things when that's not the case for so many people out there that everyday fears are still going to be so important, not important, but so to the forefront for them that um, for me, I have to always remind myself to take that step back and remember that they haven't been through what I have. However, in saying that sometimes with great patience, talking them through what they're worried about can often make them realize that actually it's not as big of a deal as they originally thought and I that all comes down to their mindset and looking at it from both points of view and realizing that well what is the worst case scenario here like what is the absolute worst case in what I'm worried about right now because if the worst case is manageable then that's fine that means like the best case scenario is going to be absolutely brilliant so it is, I mean, it's, it's all well and good to sit here and say this, you know, when you're dealing with worry bigger than you've ever dealt with before, sometimes it's difficult to actually accept that your own head can be the thing that will get you out of it. But I would say just be a little bit open enough to at least give it a try. <laughs> Especially because I suspect that people listening to this are the parents mm -hmm. of children who have been diagnosed or who are going through this. and it's it's a it's the deepest darkest fear to hear that there is something wrong with your child yeah and i think that parents need so much support to help their own minds navigate through the journey that they have to go on so that they can be functioning they can be brave they can still fill out those forms they can still care for the other members of their family they can still create a life at the end of this medical tunnel yeah. and and not just have to be the facilitators of the treatment mm -hmm. for their children but actually cared for as well because coping with that is huge 
I can like, and that's the thing I can only imagine um, from seeing my parents go through it. And like I mentioned my own struggles with that, that one particular incident in St. Vincent's, but I can only imagine how many memories my mum and dad have that they, they wake up at night thinking about, you know, even seeing me lose my hair, seeing me not able to get out of bed, like all of those things. I was only looking at it from me as the person in pain at the time, obviously, I, I don't think like that anymore, but they were looking on not able to help, seeing a child in pain and not able to help. And that can only, I can only imagine how absolutely heartbreaking that must be for them. Um, I would definitely say that, and I do believe that there is good support out there for parents now. Definitely there wasn't back in my mom and dad's day, but there de there is now, thank God. Um, but I would say that the best support a parent will get is from another parent that is going through the same because no amount of expert help will actually help unless that expert has actually had a child go through it because they won't know the feeling whereas another parent will and that's where that's what I mean about find groups whether it's online or in person find groups and join them. Um, even if a lot of what's said isn't relative or isn't um, relevant to you, stick it out because you could connect with one other family that is exactly the same as you or somewhat the same or maybe the same personalities or whatever. And not just in terms of support, can it be useful, but in terms of actual friendship. You know, you mentioned about what happens after life after treatment. Like that is so important to plan. And I'm very aware that not every family will have life after treatment. You know, not, not every child, unfortunately, survives. Um, but for those that do, that's where holding on to those connections and planning some fun things afterwards. Like one of the biggest things that got me and my family through my treatment was humor, our sense of humor. Um, to this day, there's still things we laugh about. Like there's a story I tell in my talks that, I still love to this day and it it involves my dad and it was I'd only had one severe infection when I um, was going through chemo and I was lucky in that because it's it's so infection is so likely but I only had one and it was a very dramatic day I was in um, I'd been rushed to hospital in Letterkenny and I was told that I was going to have to be sent via ambulance down to Dublin um, and it was happening like now in the next hour so dad was um, voted the person, which was a terrible mistake. Dad does not deal with stress well. He was voted the person to go back to the house and pack my bag for me. So bearing in mind, I'd had three or four cycles of chemo at this stage, so I was bald as an eagle, and I was sitting there in my hospital bed without, normally I would have worn my headscarf, but with everything going on, I didn't have it on. So dad was there, and the ambulance people were there, the doctors were there, the room was full of people, and dad was asking me what kind of stuff did I want packed. And he wasn't, he was asking without really listening to what I was saying. And he was like listing off a few things. And he goes, right, what shampoo do you want? And everyone in the room just stopped. Like nobody said a word. Everyone stopped breathing because they weren't sure how I would react. And like this bearing in mind, the light beaming off my bald head at this point. And everyone kind of looked at him and dad didn't pick up on it because he was so stressed. And he, he got annoyed at me then because I didn't answer. And he was like, Nikki, we don't have time. Will you just tell me what shampoo do you want? So he asked twice. And I just go, dad, will you just take a minute? Calm down and look at my head and then the penny dropped and I started laughing my head off and everybody fell about the place laughing and it was actually in that moment of us laughing at his silliness that mm -hmm. that tension that had been building we were either going to all bust out crying or start laughing and thankfully he actually created a scenario that allowed us to laugh 
and provide us with a funny memory that we still have, you know, that we still had to go to the hospital in Dublin via ambulance. I still had to be treated for a severe infection. We still had to deal with really serious things. However, we spent the ambulance journey giggling because we kept it kept popping into our heads. And like that is so important. Allow the laughs in and don't stop them. And like, you know, don't be afraid to poke a bit of fun at your child. I know that sounds terrible, but like my friends were my biggest bullies <laughs> in the best way possible. Like they used to laugh and joke with me and we would make jokes about how quickly I was able to get ready for a night out because I would do my makeup and then just throw on my hair. Whereas they would be spending ages washing it, curling it, figuring out what way to put it. And I would just throw it on and it was ready. And I think there's, there's a lot more importance there than you see initially. Um, but it, but being open to a bit of, I suppose, just a bit of humor. Yeah, it does. It does help. And to be treated normal. Yeah, that's exactly what everybody that's sick craves. You know, yeah. you want that relationship with your younger brother. You want that relationship with your mom and dad. Exactly. It's about life. Yeah. And not just the sickness. That's exactly what it's about. And it's about remembering what you were as a person before. And your family remembering who they were before because they still have to be able to like my mom and dad still had to be able to go out for a drink and have a night off mm. and my brother still needed to be able to like go out with friends my sister felt to this day still feels so guilty because she was so apart from it all because she was in college and she admitted years later that she did stay away at times because she missed the day-to-day -day. so it actually made it harder for her to come back into the unit um and see how much I changed or how different I looked physically and emotionally for her. It was really difficult. Like she felt like she became a stranger to her own family. And that's something that she's carried with her alone for so long. And like that, that's horrible for her. We like my mom and dad would have obviously dealt with that. But me as the, the sick person, I remember a couple of years later feeling a little bit resentful towards her because I felt she didn't care. Um, and that she just was happy to be a student in Galway when that wasn't the case at all. You know, it was, she was just completely isolated and afraid. Um, so yeah, it's, I think acknowledging everybody's journey throughout one person's illness is so important. Which is why this podcast is so important, I think, because it shares different perspectives and different experiences of lots of different families. Um, and hopefully as the show progresses, we can add more stories to that because like you said, there is nothing that will benefit a family more than connecting with or talking to another family who has gone through it or, you know, another patient who has gone through it, another sibling who has gone through it. There is nothing more supportive than talking to somebody who can completely relate to your experience. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing your experience with us because no it's very difficult right now in this year, in this world to have those face-to-face -face connections. And it's why sharing our stories across podcasts, across articles, across different ways to connect digitally is so incredibly important as people stay so kind of isolated and lonely from it. Hopefully that is about to change, but I think anyone can listen to this in their darkest moments and maybe get you know, some light bulbs and some joy and some positivity from hearing your experience. Yeah, well, I hope so because it is like it's it is the 
the darkness of night, it's when your body is tired, but your mind decides to go through everything you've ever experienced in your life. They think, yep, yeah, now's a great time to think about everything we've ever done. Um, and that is when your worst fears come out to scare you. And they may never actually become a reality, but it's when you feel you're most vulnerable and all you have at night is time. You can't go and like go for a run, well, you can, but most people won't. Um, they will sit there with their worries and that's really where your support systems will come into play and you know having access to online like it's one of the biggest things that i wish i'd had back then is the internet is easy access to the internet because since then since anything i've been through since where i've got most of my um my fears like squashed and my motivation increased is by finding incredible people out there that are that have gone through something similar and are now living basically their best life and have really taken as much positivity from all the setbacks they've been through um, that they can. So I would definitely say for people to to make the most of, you know, online, um, but also take time for yourself. Like if you're a mum or a dad listening to this now, don't feel guilty about having a night away with your friends. Just Just don't let that guilt in because you're actually doing your child a disservice if you don't give yourself some respite. And at that night away where you just drink too much wine and have a sore head the next day and make some good memories with your friends as opposed to being 100% just family focused because you need to be strong for yourself as well as your, your, your child. And as, you know, it's hard when you're in the moment to think about what you need to do for the future, but take it from me, planning now and knowing that this is going to make you stronger is is a good thing it's 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 a positive thing to know that you'll come out the other side really strong and you'll face whatever is ahead of you with so much more strength nikki thank you for everything that you're doing in sharing your journey and your positivity and your mindset um and for joining me today uh, i've thank learned so much and it's going to be such a valuable resource for people good thank you so much for having me Thank you for listening to this Gold Ribbon Conversation with Nikki Bradley. There are more Gold Ribbon stories written by those fighting childhood cancer on our website, childhoodcancer.ie, or through the link in our show notes. By rating, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast across social using hashtag Gold Ribbon Conversations, you can help this podcast to reach more families. This podcast was produced by The Brand Story for Childhood Cancer Foundation Ireland, hosted by Sinead O'Moore and sound production by Alan Breslin.